This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. Sanj Kakar, an orthopedic surgeon with a specialist interest in hand and wrist disorders at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. Artificial intelligence. You may have heard about it, but what is it? We use it all the time in daily life, such as calling for an Uber or booking accommodation via VRBO. How does it apply in the era of virtual medicine? Is it already here without you knowing about it? Joining us to discuss this today is Dr. Steve Peters, who is Chief Medical Information Officer and Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you. So Steve, I mentioned artificial intelligence, but can you actually explain what it is? Certainly. So the term, and we'll discuss it, could be something of a misnomer or allow for misinterpretation. Artificial intelligence refers to the ability of a computer to mimic human intelligence. And that would include logic and then perhaps in quotes, learning. Terms that fall under that are machine learning, which for many AI applications is really what we're talking about. And machine learning is a computer science that allows learning or creation of an algorithm or a score that wasn't specifically programmed. It allows the computer to develop the algorithm and perhaps change the weighting of certain parameters to make predictions. And one step further, we talk about deep learning and neural networks. Those are systems that are analogous to biologic connections where multiple inputs are considered. The computer looks for relationships between and among them and finds new relationships, then looks at those again and ultimately creates an output. So it can be quite a complex process that can go many layers deep to take inputs and create an output that could be a recommendation. So a computer could consider 20 or 50 or 100 parameters about a patient, an example from medicine, and then make a recommendation. What might be the next step? What might be a correct action or a clinical pathway to follow? Those are some ways in which AI is used. So Steve, you know, we're, we're told that medicine is an art and it takes years of clinical skills, experience to hone your clinical skills and diagnostic algorithms. So how does a computer learn? So the computer in these programs can learn in one of two ways. One is called unsupervised, where you set the parameters and you turn it on and you let it go. And then you assess the output when it's done. It can iterate itself. It could take the output and then look at outcomes and look at how accurate predictions were, for example, and then go back and revise an algorithm if that was the intent or the model. There's also supervised learning where, I'll stick to a clinical example, you use a computer to assess a patient and make a recommendation or an interpretation. Let's say it's an image and it's interpreted, whether it's a waveform or an x-ray or some other picture, and it's not quite accurate, then a human can go back and correct it. And you do that in versions and iterations, and that's called supervised learning. So basically, you either modify the program or you let the program work on itself to simulate human learning. So as our listeners are out there listening to this, do you see that AI and machines will take away from physicians in the future? Hopefully, they'll take away things that the physician will gladly give up. By that, I mean it could automate 
clerical tasks. It could summarize mountains of data. We didn't mention another subset of artificial intelligence that is natural language processing. That's the ability to listen to voice in the example of your smartphone or free text scan documents or PDF file in our document viewer and extract discrete data from that. So if you picture in the old paper days or in the current outside record days, a large amount of information, a smart AI system could extract before your orthopedic hand consult or my pulmonary consult, a lot of the salient features that I would be highly likely to want to know. What it is unlikely to do is replace all the human aspects of medicine. And I think that should be reassuring. Now, there are groups that have professional concerns. I mentioned image interpretation, radiology, interpretation of pulmonary function studies, sleep disorders, radiographs, CT scans. Much of this might be partially automated. I don't think it will be in the near future completely replaced, but it will remove a lot of the repetitive work that can be replaced by a machine. What about, for example, procedural types of specialties? How do you see AI complementing those types of specialties? I think it will complement procedures in a similar way. I don't think we'll have the equivalent of a self-driving car for robotic surgery anytime soon. You know better than I the capabilities of robotics, another form of AI, of course, that we didn't mention until now, is the ability to amplify the human techniques, both by watching the procedure, knowing the next step, guiding the hand, or in some cases, potentially automating. So if you had, for example, a digital image of a nodule that you wanted to biopsy or put a needle in. So we do a CT guided or transabdominal or transthoracic or ultrasound guided procedure. It's not hard to imagine that with the image loaded in the computer and a robotic arm directing that needle or biopsy instrument that one could automate that or certainly improve the capability or make it more efficient to do that with uh, help of a machine. I don't think personally you'll see beginning to end robotic surgery anytime soon. But of course, we're seeing robotic surgery advancing every year currently. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I know it's used in orthopedics for, for example, uh, knee replacements and in prostatectomies where the robot is actually improving accuracy in terms of surgical precision. So I'm glad that you mentioned it there. Now, I just want to switch gears now in terms of Mayo Clinic. And obviously, Mayo Clinic has a rich tradition of history of innovation. Can you tell us how Mayo Clinic is using AI technology to help transform patient care? Sure. Mayo has real strength in a few areas. You know, we don't have a computer science department. We don't have hundreds of undergraduates running around looking for basic science projects in artificial intelligence or machine learning or natural language processing or robotics. But we have a surprising amount that goes on. One area in health science research in which we've been very strong is natural language processing. So we've been a national leader in starting from research and now into application of being able to get discrete information out of free text, as I mentioned, whether that's a notes or a scan document, anywhere in a record. And another area where Dr. Brad Erickson and the radiology group in 
starting out of research, but now very quickly moving to applications is in digital imaging, is in the ability to first segment parts of the body. So before you can interpret whether something is normal or abnormal, you have to know where is the liver, where is the kidney, what part of the brain is abnormal on an MRI or CT scan. And the other areas are certainly in machine learning with development of predictive algorithms where there's just many that are being developed right now and a number that are being put into production in various areas of the practice to predict outcomes, monitor adverse events, provide a number of levels of decision support. So let's talk about what some of the audience may have seen. For example, how your smartwatch can record an EKG and then interpret that. Is that a form of AI and how accurate is that? So interpretation of the waveform of your ECG is definitely a form of, of AI and it's a very sophisticated form. The way that began is in our cardiology group with a large data set in which we have obviously hundreds of thousands of electrocardiograms and also other studies on many of the same patients like an echocardiogram. So they fed in these waveforms and looked at patients with other cardiac problems. So the heart muscle might have a problem, but the electrical conduction through the heart also may show subtle abnormalities that are not easily seen by the human eye. But when you show it enough examples to the computer are processed in that way. So they've shown that the computer can predict, for example, your gender, which no human can do. It can predict your gender with about 99% accuracy and your age within a few years and your likelihood of developing atrial fibrillation and your serum potassium level and several other things. So fairly remarkable insights that can be gained by the full 12 lead ECG and then extending that knowledge to a single lead or a subset of leads by different device that one might wear as a watch or a device that you hold on to, or if you place some electrodes on your body. So you talked there about AI in terms of diagnostic. What about predictive abilities? So AI in its full implementation can also be used. It can use to predict outcomes in a couple of ways. One is by an algorithm, as I mentioned earlier, machine learning to create a score, a scoring system, a predictive score. Now one could do that in this example, machine learning is really just a sophisticated statistical technique. We've for decades before we talked about AI used tools like regression to take a bunch of parameters and then maybe change the weight, say that age is a little more important than your body weight. And that's equally important to your cholesterol and your blood pressure and so on. And you sum up a score and that predicts the likelihood of a cardiac event in the next five or 10 years as one example. Well, now with machine learning, you can feed in many parameters, accelerate that and come up with more accurate types of prediction. Now, another way, when I said it could be at least two ways, would be given a set of circumstances that AI using the past of hundreds or thousands of patients to predict the future could say this patient in the way they look today is likely to deteriorate, that there's signs of a worsening condition or there's signs that 
if it's a post-operative patient, there, there's an expected pathway to recovery, they're falling off that pathway, that there are things we can sense, whether it's their response to treatments or a physiologic parameter like a heart rate or temperature or signs of bleeding or drop in hemoglobin, things that we, we might pick up clinically but might be very subtle and taken in combination could predict an outcome or alert the provider that this patient needs more attention. I see. So if I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about this in the primary care world, how would you advise our primary care colleagues to be using AI in their patient management? So there would be many ways. We talked about the smartphone. We talked about image interpretation. So one example would be a patient with a skin lesion. Well, nowadays you can get an app and take a picture of the skin lesion and get a reasonable prediction of what is a benign nodule and what might be squamous cell or basal cell carcinoma, or even what might be a melanoma, what should be biopsied, what should be removed right away. And so you might avoid unnecessary visits. You might also guide the patient to earlier treatment because they could do things like that, capture an image. Another important way for primary care would be in population management. Under current payment models, we often have an, an impetus to see the patient face-to-face -face or do an individual telemedicine visit. But we know that models like accountable care organizations are coming. So now you could have care coordinators watching a thousand patients and there could be data that's submitted by the patient. We could be recording that. There could be data from their last visit if we did a, a blood pressure on site, there could be wearable devices that are transmitting data. Now we have a spreadsheet with a thousand names in the rows and the columns are their blood pressure control, their lipid control, their hemoglobin A1C, their need for screening studies, perhaps some other predictive scores that were from a machine learning algorithm to predict their cardiovascular risk or stroke risk or bleeding risk, a management of their anticoagulation or other medications. Those dashboards can be created, then decision support rules and other machine learning type inputs could be lighting up that screen, alerting a, a coordinator, this patient should be brought in, this patient's diabetes is out of control, this patient is due for a recheck and on down the line. So of the thousand patients, one might come in in the morning and say, here are 20 that we need to intervene. Mm -hmm. And I think that's coming. We do a fair amount of that already, but it's really uh, fairly early and could be a lot more sophisticated and very effective for managing large groups of primary care patients. Yeah, no, wonderful example, Steve. Thank you for sharing those with us. So one thing that I see regularly in clinic is a patient that will come in same diagnoses in, in two different patients, and yet one treatment will work on one patient and it won't work on the other. How can AI, for example, be used to try and individualize the treatment that we're giving to patients, be that therapeutics, be that listed for certain procedures, et cetera? And that's a great question. So how do we recognize and predict the next time a different outcome in two different people who look similar? So one would be to have more data. So we have tens of thousands of patients, but not all of our patients and not millions of patients who have had genetic or genomic studies. And we run a certain number of pharmacogenomic rules. That is, if I go to prescribe a medication and the system knows that that patient has a gene 
that will rapidly metabolize that medication. So I would need either a higher dose or a different medicine. I can advise that prescriber in real time that that should happen. So that's not technically AI, that's clinical decision support using simple rules when we know a gene study. But what if you knew a whole genome or you had other data, big data in a cloud, you knew other things about that patient and you then took, before you go back to your two patients, you studied all the patients with those diagnoses and looked at the group that had better outcomes, the group that had worse outcomes, and then ran one of these algorithms against that with aspects of, of deep learning, letting it find every parameter, every metric we had on those patients and see if there's a way to predict, then come back and see if it works on your two patients. And then importantly, test it on the next 200 patients to see is this predictor of outcome valid? Does it have a good sensitivity and specificity for determining which patient might benefit from a certain treatment? Steve, in, in that answer, you mentioned some buzzwords that jumped off at me. For example, cloud, thousands of patients' uh, data. Are there ethical considerations when using AI and building these algorithms? Certainly, ethical considerations, yeah. The concept of, of a cloud, first, technically, I, I was thinking of that in terms of what we call big data. So that is, and, and AI is important for that because we talked about language processing or taking unstructured data and bringing it down to something tangible. So big data refers to unstructured data, fast moving video, sound, free text, any variety of, of data, input from devices, streaming data, that becomes massive amounts of information that would require a computer to process and then try to glean some tangible findings from that. So one ethical concern is privacy. So often such data when they're used for research are de-identified that you really take the base parameters of the patient, you might need some of their demographics, age and gender and so on, but try to eliminate from the records when you study the patients, identifiable information. Now, other concerns about AI, and you've asked about a couple of them, like putting the physician's skill, minimizing it or taking it out of play. There is a concern about over-reliance on com the computer, saying, well, the computer said I should do this, I guess I'll just do it and move on to the next patient. So that computer is not providing holistic care. It's not providing humanistic care. It doesn't know the patient's desires or wants or goals of, of life. The data and the recommendations are only as good as what went in so that there can be bias in the data set that's used for training. If you go back to some of the famous original studies like the Framingham study for cardiovascular disease and look at the population, and say, okay, that study was done 40 some years ago in a population of this certain mix of socioeconomic status and, and race and gender, and then say, I'll use it to predict the future for everyone, you might certainly be wrong because you won't be representing the current population. So data integrity or representation of data, and is it appropriately reflective of the population you're going to apply it to? There's a concern about what's called black box algorithm. By that, I mean, a recommendation comes out. The algorithm's there, the inputs are in the medical record, and the screen lights up with a recommendation. But you can't tell where it came from or why. And there's a big push against that so that the best algorithms 
could show you how they derived that weight or that score or that recommendation. What was it about that patient that led to that recommendation? And I mentioned also, so extrapolating from training sets that don't represent the population. And some others are sort of technical. Often these algorithms are black and white. You want to treat a disease as present or absence, but that's not what human physiology and diseases are. They're often shades of gray or diseases occur like blood pressure is on a continuum. So to say this is what you do for hypertension may not be as useful as clinical judgment would be. So there's still and certainly will be, I think, an art of medicine that is not going to go away. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that uh, because as, as Malcolm Gladwell has taught us over and over again, to get to a certain level of expertise takes a certain level of uh, repetitions and hours to be an expert. So I'm glad to see that we will not be obsolete. I wanted to also talk to you about value-based healthcare. So when we think about value now, we think of high quality at low cost. How do you see AI helping with that and how Mayo Clinic is a leader in this field? Yeah, so I think AI can help in the value equation. We've discussed some ways in which it should help improve outcomes, the numerator, and then certainly could be used to better identify cost-effective solutions in the denominator so that outcomes divided by cost and quality is optimized. There are many things we do. We know there are national programs for appropriate testing and not over-testing or doing unnecessary procedures. And many of these same AI algorithms could be refined to help in that regard so that you could be advised when ordering a medication, an expensive biologic, planning a procedure, ordering an expensive imaging study that has a high radiation exposure and may have already been done a week ago outside and is not likely to yield new information. That would be a simple example where an AI advisor could tell you, oh, you're requesting a PET scan of this patient. The machine may see it, and maybe you didn't, that they just had one in Chicago a week ago, and here's that result for you, and present that to you. Now, another important thing in the numerator, the outcomes, is outcomes are often corrected for severity of illness, and this is a fairly straightforward, kind of simple application of AI, but it's very important. And when you, you want to have correct interpretation of how your patients are doing. So you go to do a procedure, you want to know what else is wrong with this patient? What comorbidities do they have? In the uh, problem list parlance of CMS, they're called hierarchical condition categories or HCC diagnoses. So if you operate on a patient for cardiac condition or brain tumor, it makes a difference if they have chronic obstructive lung disease, poorly controlled hypertension, diabetes type 2, renal insufficiency. And what AI could do is make sure that you've captured that. And unfortunately, given the regulations the way they are, it has to be captured in the right place in the record. It can't be hidden in the outside records or in a note from last year. It has to be, in my example, in a hospital history and physical. You have to have concurrent documentation of those problems. That's a simple example where AI can greatly help accuracy of predicting the outcome so that you're observed to expected mortality, length of stay, many of those parameters are correctly applied. Uh, so I think that AI could hugely 
help improve quality and reduce cost by sort of continuously monitoring. Let me say it another way, a whole, a whole cycle of how AI could help. We want to take care of a patient, AI could help with designing the correct treatments and way we discussed. Now AI could monitor what we're doing with those treatments. It could monitor the outcome. It could predict adverse events. It could anticipate problems and make recommendations and then monitor the outcome of those and sort of complete a cycle. And really in the entire care of the patient from planning to monitoring after care has been delivered, AI has a lot of potential. Yeah, Steve, I love that analogy in terms of how you basically spelt out how AI can help from the whole spectrum from when a patient not only is being treated for disease, but how you can prevent and diagnose and doing it in a safe manner. Steve, is there anything else that you'd like to add that we didn't discuss? No, I think we've covered it. I think it's, as I say, it's important. AI is such a buzzword that it's important to recognize it's encompassing things from your smart speaker in your room, to your smartphone assistant, to your self-driving car, to robotic surgery, to image interpretation. And there is one final thing. I think that a real breakthrough will come when we have, and we've touched upon it, but I haven't sort of stated it uh, straightforward, that what we'd call cognitive support. If you imagine a given patient, the complex amounts of information to that patient might be hard for any one provider to find. There are things in the outside record. They've had a complex past medical history. There's a large body of data for that patient. At the same time, there's an ever-increasing amount of knowledge in the world, all the medical literature, all the societal guidelines, and what might be the best treatment for that patient. We're long past the point where I think any one of us as a specialist outside of perhaps our most core specialty can process both the patient's complex data and all the information and all the recommendations in the world. That's where a tool like AI with a computer that can know everything about this patient and can know all the recommendations in the literature, including current research and best practice recommendations can process that and help present it at the point of care. And that's when I think we'll really start to see a, a fulfillment of a lot of the promise. We've been talking today about artificial intelligence with Dr. Steve Peters. Thanks for your time today, Steve, for joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and thank you for the privilege of your time.